Well, good morning. morning it's nice to see everyone here this morning. Uh, as Ivan was saying, uh, next Sunday, we are going to be in the San Fernando Valley worshiping with the Valley Church. That's our sort of our parent church. That's where we came from. And about once a month, we like to go back and worship with them. And normally we do that on the fourth Sunday of the month, but this month we're doing it on the third Sunday of the month. And the reason why is because the, uh, the schedule with the hotel uh, created that situation. So this year, we're not always going to be on the fourth Sunday. We're going to kind of be mixed up a little bit because of conflicts with the hotel. But uh, other than that, uh, I want to welcome everyone here this morning to See Me Church. Thank you for being with us. I think I introduced myself, or I've introduced me, but I'm Joe Collins, and we've been doing a series since the, uh, the year has started called Hashtag Jesus or Following Jesus, and the idea is we're reading the book of Mark, and we're just going to the places that Jesus went in the book of Mark, and then we're just trying to understand what he did, what happened, and what we can learn from that. And I don't know about you, but uh, for me, preparing the sermons have been really great because it's really given me a new way to look at the Gospels. I've read the Gospels a lot, and over the 20-some-odd years, I've been a disciple. And, you know, sometimes you just need to be refreshed in your own Bible study, and this has really refreshed, refreshed me because I like looking at it from the perspective of what he did, where, you know, what he did in the places that he went. So there was a guy, and he got on a train, I'm sorry, he got on a plane, he was traveling. And you know on a plane, you're walking down the aisles, they're narrow, and there's people finding their seats. And as he was going down, he was looking for his seat. On the, on the aisle to his left, sort of the center of the plane, there was a woman there, and he just took notice of her. She was holding an infant. And uh, as he passed by, he just happened to glance at the infant, and it was a good thing that he, he had a lot of self-control because that was the ugliest baby he'd ever seen in his life. Now, babies are cute, don't get me wrong, but that baby, for whatever, it was just one ugly baby. And that thought went through his mind, and he felt so bad about thinking that thought, but he had self-control, and so he didn't say anything, but he found his seat just a couple seats later. He sat down, and then he watched as people came down the aisle, and he noticed that every time somebody went, they kind of were looking around, they saw the lady, then they'd see the baby, and then they'd make a face. And he knew what they were thinking. They were thinking the same thing he was thinking. That is one ugly baby. Well, then a guy gets on the plane, and he's one of these guys that you could tell right away he's talking loud as he gets on the plane. There's no filter in this guy, right? He's one of those guys, he's just talking. Everything that comes into his mind comes right out of his mouth. And sure enough, that guy walks by the lady. He sees the, 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 the first passenger, sees the man. He looks at the lady. He sees the baby. He sees the look on his face. And sure enough, the guy blurts out, man, that's an ugly baby. Well, you could imagine the mom was so offended. She was shocked. She was incensed. So she created a huge stir, just started screaming and complaining and uh, yelling for the stewards and, and the captain. And there was a big commotion and everybody came over and the stewards were trying to understand what was going on. And she was demanding for the captain. Finally, the captain comes over and, they, and she's telling him, this guy, I can't believe you let people like this in. Is this the kind of company you run? And she was just dressing him down, giving him a hard time. And I'm, I, I'm not going to stand for this. It's terrible treatment with the captain. Very cool, calm, and collected. He, he calms everything down. He listens to the woman's complaint. He gets everybody else to sit down. And he says, uh, ma'am, you know, we at such and such airlines, we are so sorry uh, for your inconvenience and for this terrible thing that's happened. And Listen, uh, my apologies. We've removed that passenger from the plane. He will not be on the plane. And, and more than that, we're going to move you up to first class because we want you to have a good experience here. And this is not what we stand for. And, 
And I'll tell you what, while you're in first class, all the drinks, all the food are on, are on, the, on the company because we just want to make things right. And, and if I get a chance, I'll look around and see if I can't find a banana for that monkey of yours. It's a joke. It's a joke. Turn with me to Mark chapter 1. Let's pray before we read. Father, thank you for this time to be together. Thank you for this chance to worship you. And we're so grateful for all that you do for us. Thank you for the great time of worship and connecting with your love. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Mark 1, we're going to start in verse 29. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told her, told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. Now, if you've been following along in our series, uh, you'll know that we've been following Jesus from his, his start out in Nazareth down into the, 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 the province of Judea, now near Jerusalem, and then he's returned up back into to the province of Galilee, his home province. And, uh, and he had gone to the Sea of Galilee where he began to gather around him some disciples. He recruited a few guys to be his followers. And then on a Sabbath, they went into a synagogue. We talked about this last week. If you've missed any of our, our messages, you can go to seemechurch.org, and they're all posted there. You can, you can catch up with any sermon you might have missed. But he goes to the, uh, to the synagogue on a, on a Sabbath, and they begin worshiping there. Jesus is invited to speak. We talked about this last week. And uh, he, he preaches, speaks in such a way that blows everybody's mind. They can't, they're like stunned at his authority and, the, and the, the confidence he has when he preaches. And then a man possessed by a demon comes into the synagogue and Jesus heals him. And then everybody's terrified. They don't know what to make of Jesus because he had this, not only did he speak with authority, but he had authority. Well, when the, when the worship was over at the synagogue, and if you're looking at the picture on the screen, the synagogue, that square or rectangular white building in the middle, that is actually what most people believe, and, it's, and I do too, the actual synagogue that Jesus preached in. We're seeing a picture here of, 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 of the city of Capernaum, or I should say the ruins of the city of Capernaum, and uh, they're held in private hands now. They're a historical site. You can go visit them, but this is the excavation of the city of Capernaum, and that's the synagogue that most probably Jesus had spoken in. Of course, uh, it was actually under that. The ruins of it are under that synagogue. So when this happens, the services end, and Jesus leaves the synagogue, and he goes to Peter's house. I'm sorry, Simon's house. I'm going to keep screwing that up. Simon and Andrew were brothers. Simon's name was later changed to Peter, so I keep calling him Peter, but we'll stick with Simon for now. They go to Simon and Andrew's house. Now, you see that octagonal building closer to the ocean there? That is believed to be the site of Simon and Andrew's house. Uh, under that, that's a building that was built later. It's, it's actually a church. People can go worship there. But under that building, they have a, like a glass floor. You can see the ruins or the, or the foundation of, of, of Simon and Andrew's home. Now, it was a, a home much like every other home in the city, maybe a little bit bigger than most homes. Simon and Andrew were businessmen, and they probably were very successful. So they had a larger home, but it was still a home like any other. Simple, rough walls, had an earthen roof with earth and, and, and straw made out of it. But, but it's interesting, they just a short walk from the synagogue to Simon's home. So they go into Simon's home, and, and, and a lot of amazing things happened in Simon's home. We're going to talk about in future sermons. But, but it was there that Jesus healed people. It was there that Jesus taught some amazing teachings that we read about. 
And, and, uh, and, and, and as, as Capernaum became the home of Jesus, he, he was from Nazareth, but he moved to Capernaum and made that his home city. So the home of Simon and Andrew became the home of Jesus. He basically lived there with Simon and Andrew. That was kind of his place. That was his uh, crib right there, hanging out with the homies in Capernaum. Now, uh, and, and like I said, a lot of amazing things happened there. Now, I want to pause for a minute because I want to say something to the church here in, in Simi, to Simi Church, that I really appreciate uh, 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 about us. And that is that by and large, as a church, we are very hospitable people. And I want to commend you for your hospitality. Because I know every one of you, I've been in almost every one of your homes, just about, and I've seen your homes, and I've been treated with hospitality there, and I know many other people have been treated with hospitality there, and I really appreciate that. You're, set, you're following in the example of Simon and Andrew, who opened their home up to Jesus and, and others that, that uh, they wanted to be hus hospitable to and treat with kindness and compassion, and I really want to say thank you to every one of you for using your home in that way. You know what's really neat is that home stood for 300 years. It became a central gathering place for the early Christians for more than 300 years. They turned it into their own church after Simon and Andrew and everybody had passed away and left. It became a church. Wow. Imagine that. Imagine what God might do with your home down the road, if you use it, if you invite Jesus in and then you treat others with hospitality, who knows what legacy might be left behind because of what you do in the home Amen. that you live in. Amen. So they come into the house and Simon's mother-in-law, he was married contrary to some false traditions that teach that Simon was, who became Peter, was, a, was an unmarried man. He was the first pope and he couldn't be married. That's not true. He had a mother-in-law. If you translate that in Greek into English, it's translated mother-in-law. So he had a mother-in-law. He was married. His wife actually, though not mentioned much, is mentioned occasionally, and she, and she did travel with him long after this around on various missionary journeys. So he had a, a live, he wasn't a widower. He, was a, she had, he had a living wife, and, and him and his wife, and, and Andrew may or may not have been married. We don't know, but they lived in the house there. And the mother-in-law was sick in bed, with a fever. So they tell Jesus about her, and it says that he went to her and he took her by the hand and he helped her up. Now, those two words, took and helped, are really interesting. The word took has the has in the in the original language has the meaning of authority or power. In other words, he seized her hand. And it really communicates the power and the authority that resided within Jesus, much like when he taught in the synagogue and he taught with authority. Well, he, when he healed people, he healed with authority. He grabbed her, and then he raised her up. That word is the same word used to describe his own resurrection. It really communicates the sense of power and authority with that resided in the physical body of Jesus Christ. There was no mistaking that he was special, that he was different, that there was something more to him than just being a great teacher or an impressive guy or even a lucky guy. He had power and authority to do miracles, and he raised her up. Now, I know what's happening right now, and I, 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 don't, even, I, I don't even need to say it because I know it's happening. Every woman in the room is thinking to themselves, of course, 
Here I am, half dead in bed. I wake up, and now i got to feed everybody in the house, right? You see that passage, and right away you think, just it's always been this way in this horrible, paternistic, chauvinistic, male-dominated culture we live in. There it is, right there. Jesus was a part of it, too. He wanted to get a meal, so he went in there and healed her just so she could cook for him after being half dead on the bed there. I know you're thinking that. I was sharing this with my wife, and she, she was actually the one that gave me that point. Oh, you got to make that point right there, because that's how every woman feels. <laughs> but you know what's interesting is, again, I don't want to nitpick the words, but the words are really interesting here. I want you to notice the word wait. That is the word diakoneos in Greek, and it means to attend to or to serve. Now, you think, of course, women always have to do the work, right? And that's what goes through your mind. But in reality, that word is the same word Jesus used about himself later when he said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Right. You see, what, what we see in the example of Simon's mother-in-law is not an unliberated, a, a, oppressed woman in a male-dominated, chauvinistic society. That's not at all the language that's being used here. What we see is the first example of a person to act like Christ. That's who Simon's mother-in-law was. She was an example of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Amen. To be a servant, to wait on, to attend to other people. This was an eye-opener for me, and it still is because, Lord knows, I like to be served. I'm good at it. You know, I really am good at it. I can sit there, and I can take anything you want to give me. I'm really comfortable with it. But, you know, Jesus is calling me to be the server. Jesus is calling me to be the servant, and if you want to be like Jesus Christ, you are going to need to serve. That's what it looks like to be a waiter, to open your home up, to make it nice, to invite people in, to make the meals, to clean the dishes, whatever, whatever menial task you think you're doing, it is to be, you're being like Christ when you serve. I got to say again, we've been almost a year old now as Simi Church, and I want to thank every one of you for being a part of Simi Church. I remember, those of you that were there, you may remember, we, we to a man and to a woman said we're all in. And we said same page and we clapped, right? Do you remember that day when we decided we're going to do it, we're going to launch Simi Church? And we said same page and everybody clapped. I want to thank you for being a part of Simi Church and for serving in whatever way that you've served to get us to this point. Can you imagine? We're almost one year old. We have a whole calendar now. We have all kinds of events going on. We're going to do all kinds of things in the coming years, all to give God glory, all to express our faith. But it's going to happen because we are filled, because we're a church made up of servants right. and people who are willing to do the menial work. Amen. You got to be congratulated for that. You got to feel good about yourself for that. I want to thank the, the sound people. They come here early, 8 o'clock. 
and they are working hard to get our sound turned on and all the microphones set up. I want to thank those who fix the chairs, who make sure the communion bread is here, who bring all the supplies. I mean, there are so many people who are serving in the kids' classes, who are teaching the, the, the high school classes. There are so many people involved on any given day in Simi Church that, that uh, you know, we can't help but have uh, uh, recognize them and say thank you for their service. And you, maybe, maybe you're not quite there. Maybe you're not actually coming early and setting things up, but you're opening your home. You're being helpful. You're talking to a new face. You're making sure you're engaging people. You're treating them you're, you know, like their family. You're being a good host. And I want to thank you for doing that because we wouldn't have Simi Church without servants, without people who were willing to serve. Verse 32. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. What Mark is giving us is sort of a day in the life of Jesus. <laughs> and we're following him just in this one day. He's, the, the morning started out up in the synagogue where Jesus taught and healed a demon-possessed man. And here we are in the evening at, at Simon and Andrew's home where Jesus is now, the, the, the Sabbath is over, people are free to move about, and now in the evening, they're bringing all the sick and, and demon-possessed people from all over the city because they had heard about what happened in the synagogue. They may have already heard about what he did to Peter's, to Simon's mother-in-law, and they brought all these people to him outside of Peter's home. This picture here is actually a ground floor view. That's the church that was built on top. But it's very possible right here, right in this area, there were tens, maybe hundreds of people lined up hoping to get a chance to be healed by Jesus Christ. Right there in front of Peter's house, right in front of his front yard, they brought everyone. And Jesus spent the evening healing ministering, taking care of people's physical needs. I had the chance a couple years ago to go and visit our church, a couple of our churches in Cambodia. And trip of a lifetime, it really was. And it was an incredible experience for me. I brought my son Hunter with me. And we spent about a week there and we spent time with the disciples. We visited. But in the city of, of, of in, in Cambodia, in the capital city of, of Cambodia, we have a, a hospital that our church uh, sponsors, the Sihanouk Hospital. And it's there... Uh, and it, and it, it opens its doors and it provides medical services, good medical services, especially comparative to what else you would get in that city, um, to anyone that would come. And I, I can't even remember the number, but it's thousands of people every year come through that hospital and they're, they're treated freely and their needs are ministered to there. And one of the things that is very compelling to me about the hospital is when it first opened, um, they, they had no system of, of triage, of bringing people in. And in our country, we're used to the idea of that the most injured or the most sick would be treated first. But in, in Cambodia, because of the, the corruption in the government for so many years, people didn't trust that you were being fair. So if, if we went in and our, our, uh, our mindset was to take the worst first, they, they, it really hurt their trust with the hospital because they, didn't, they read into it that, oh, you're favoring that guy or that person over me. They didn't have any concept of, of doing, treating the worst first because of all the corruption. So what they did is they actually had a lottery system. So you might have somebody with a headache and you might have somebody with internal bleeding and they just got a lottery whether they were going to be treated. 
And that was fair to them because of how desperate, uh, the, how badly managed the country was. But that's how it started. I don't know what Jesus did outside of Peter's house. I don't know if he dealt with the worst first or if it was the same kind of thing where he just, he just had to randomly pick people. But what I do know is he helped countless souls that day, Amen. healed them of their illnesses and of their demon possession. Now, I'm going to pause for a minute because I believe wholeheartedly that God, has, that God has put on my heart to not just preach, but to teach. And I think from time to time, we have to actually learn things from God's Word. And we have to be open to learning things from God's Word because it's going to help us understand God's Word that much more. And one of the things I want to talk about here for just a second, just a couple minutes, because I know it's boring, and I'm not going to say anything shocking, but I want to talk about demon possession. Because it's one of those issues. People wonder, what's that about? What's going on? And you see TV shows on it. And there was the movie The Exorcist. And, and there's all this fascination with it. And it seems like the Bible talks about it all the time. But then we don't necessarily see it today. And so we tend to think, well, they were ignorant and uneducated. And so they just called everything demon possession. And, you know, if you were mentally ill or if you were sick, it was, it was always because of a demon. That's how we, as C.S. Lewis put it, that's how we in our chronological snobbery look at the ancient world. We think because we're modern, we're somehow better. But I want you to notice that the word, that the, length, that the verse says they brought many who had various diseases and also drove out many demons. The fact of the matter is the ancients understood the difference between an illness and a demon possession. They did know that the two things were not the same. As a matter of fact, we might need to learn from them. There might be some wisdom and insight that we've lost in our modern minds that they had. And they were able to discern the difference. Now, I'm not saying they were right all the time. And I'm not saying that uh, every time somebody is sick today, it, it could be a demon. I'm not going that far. I'm just trying to say they had a different wisdom than we have. And we've got to be careful that in our modern thinking, we don't think we're somehow better than they are because we're modern. One of my favorite books is Dracula. Now, you may be thinking, the preacher's talking about Dracula. <laughs> Bram Stoker, who wrote Dracula, was a very religious person. He was a devout believer, and he actually wrote the book for a reason. It was a little bit of a sermon. And the reason he wrote the book was he was concerned about modernity, about this modern man having only uh, facts to go on and scientific evidences. And so he wrote the book purposely to illuminate the modern man to the idea that there is a spiritual and a, a, a world out there or there's a part of the world that we, don't, we can't always understand through our senses and through our, 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 our rigorous adherence to facts. Yeah. And so if you ever read the book Dracula, I know Ethel has and I, I talked her into reading it, I'd encourage you to read it, you'll find yourself yelling at the characters in the book. Because it's so obvious that Dracula's the bad guy and they cannot figure it out. Because they just don't believe that this kind of creature could exist. You know, I think in modernity, we're, we're a little bit like that. We're so sure of ourselves that we lose a little sight of the spiritual world. There is a spiritual world. Now, I don't claim to know the difference between an illness and a demon possession, and, and nor would I encourage you to do that. I trust that the, the writers at the time, the witnesses there, and Jesus himself could tell the difference. Right. And that's good enough for me. 
I trust that and I can go with that. I'm not here to try to diagnose mental illness or demon possession because at the end of the day, Jesus can deal with either one of them. And if I bring people to Jesus through my actions and through my words, he will decide what their problem is and he can fix them. It's not me that fixes them. So I don't need to worry about a diagnosis. I don't need to go into all the details of what it means. I can just trust that there are spiritual problems and there are physical problems. And the good news is Jesus handles both. Never mind the fact that nowhere in the Bible does it say that, you know, demon-possessed people do sit-ups and spew uh, uh, split-pea soup all over the place. And, you know, I mean, it doesn't say that. You know, the movies, you know, make all this up. What's interesting is when Jesus healed somebody of demon possession, he just said, leave, and the thing left. It wasn't all that complicated. So I believe he can still do that today. And and that's why I want to bring people to Jesus. Because he can help them in their affliction, whether it's spiritual or whether it's it's physical. Okay, so enough said on the little sidebar. Let's get back into the story. We're going to pick it up here in verse 35. Very early in the morning, uh, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, let's go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That is why I've come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out the demons. So there's a long night of healing people in the city of Capernaum, outside Peter's house, and then everybody finally crashes. Jesus wakes up early, heads off to a solitary place, to pray. Everyone else eventually wakes up, and they go looking for him. And the language here is funny, because while I believe it's a good idea for every one of us, myself included, to spend our morning looking for Jesus, what a great way to describe a morning quiet time. I'm going to go looking for Jesus, whether I read my Bible or say a prayer, whatever it is, that's what I'm going to do when I get up. That's a good thing. It's a good practice. Unfortunately, that's not the spirit that these guys had. As a matter of fact, the word looking here is the word for hunt down. They were angry. And they went hunting him throughout the city. Where did he go? What's he doing? They were irritated. And when they find him, they're like, everyone's looking for you! Exclamation point. They were angry that he wandered off. Because we love it when people serve us. We love it when people come and do things for us and heal us. And we just get so happy and excited about that that we want more and more and more and more, don't we? And and the city of Capernaum was in the danger of looking at Jesus only for what he could do for them physically. And so Jesus says to them in, in a rebuke, I'm leaving. Because I didn't come here to take care of physical needs. I came here to preach. Yes, Jesus took care of physical needs. Yes, as followers of Jesus, we need to be about taking care of people's needs, helping uh, you know, in benevolent actions, serving the community, whatever it is we do. Yes, yes, and more yes. But, but if you really look at the, the, the story of Christ, there was a reason beyond helping the fellow man that Jesus helped people in their need. There was, there was more to his method than just goodness to the fellow man. 
It was also because he had a message. And in fact, he said, that's why I have come. You can see on the map there, Capernaum is the city. I don't know exactly where Jesus went, but it was somewhere in that area up around the little locator where Jesus just wandered off. He went off, left Capernaum, and he went to towns and villages, and he began doing the same thing there that he did in Capernaum. He began to heal people, minister to their needs. And then when he had a crowd, he began to preach. Now, that's an interesting concept when you think about it. This was Jesus' method and his message. His method was to gather a crowd. And he did it by performing miracles, by powerful teaching, by amazing displays of authority. And then he preached at them. And then he talked to them. I'm going to ask my two ushers to get ready because I have something I want to hand out to you in just a second. But I want us to think about Jesus' ministry for a minute from this lens, that he sought to create a crowd. You ever wonder why we come to church or why we do some of the events we do, marriage classes, or last night some of us had a great Valentine's dinner together? Do you ever wonder why we celebrate things the way we do? Well, certainly there's the, the worship of God. I don't, I don't want to diminish that in any way, shape, or form. There's certainly the connection to God, but it's also an event. It's also a way in which we can display to the world what we're about. And it gives us an opportunity to share the message. So I'm going to ask the ushers to do me a favor. They're going to hand out an invitation to you. And it's an invitation to our birthday service coming up March 6th. I want everyone to take 10 or 15 of them. I don't know how many. Just grab a bunch. We've got a lot. And I want you to think of these things, as, these invitations, as ways to create a crowd. Not unlike Jesus who could heal people and create a crowd. We can't do that. But, but we can have events. And in our events, we can create a crowd. We had a great chili cook-off a couple weeks ago, and there was almost 150 people at our chili cook-off. That was a great crowd. Some of them came back for other events. The goal is not to end with the crowd, but it's to create the crowd so that we can then pass the message on us, lived his ministry. If you looked at these healings and these visits to the various villages and cities as events, he was using them to generate a crowd, and then he would preach at them. As a matter of fact, it was during this time when Jesus left Capernaum and he, and he traveled around the area of Galilee that he taught the Sermon on the Mount, the most important sermon ever preached, his greatest sermon ever taught. And he did it because when he traveled around to all these towns and villages, he got a crowd of several thousand, many thousand, maybe even tens of thousands. And when he did that, he got up on a hillside and he preached at them the Sermon on the Mount, the most powerful and important message ever preached. Well, we want to do the same thing at Simi Church. We want to create crowds. We want to create events that bring crowds. And then we can begin to engage the people at the event and begin to communicate to them the message. Because, like Bram Stoker says in Dracula, or wants to tell you in the book of Dr in, in Dracula, there's more to this life than just the physical. It goes beyond just healing people in their need. It's healing people... It's healing people's real need. And their real need is to, be, is to be right with God. It's a spiritual need. 
Yeah, we can help them in their humanity, but we have to. We have to go beyond that. We have to help them spiritually. There's a church in the valley I drive by every now and then, and they have a sign out there. It's kind of their mission statement. It says, peace and justice for all. And I, I, I think it's a great mission statement. I like it, but it's, it's only part of the story. They're, they're all into social justice and, and making the world a better place. And that's only part of the story. Because this world is not our home, as Jesus taught. The goal is not to make this world a better place. The goal is to save humanity. Because this world will pass away. Our goal as Christians, is a spiritual goal. It's a spiritual objective that we're after. That is seeking and saving the lost. And that's why Jesus went from town to town and he preached. He preached the good news, repentance and forgiveness. That's what he preached to the world around him. And we need to be about the same. So take those invites. Use them. Invite people and let's create the crowd. We have an Easter service coming up. We have a family camp out. We have all kinds of things we're doing throughout the year. Great events that you can invite people to. And once they're in the door, we need to be like Simon's mom and serve and attend and wait on them and minister to them as Jesus would minister to them. Be there for them in whatever way we can be there for them in. But at the end of the day, we don't stop there. We need to share the message. It's the message that's going to heal them. It's the message, the good news, that's going to change their lives. I have a friend who has gone through a very tragic time. He's not a disciple. He's not a follower of Christ. He believes in in Jesus. He attends church, but he went through a major problem in his marriage. I mean, it's, it's in bad shape. And he has been down and out for a couple of weeks, and I've had the, you know, all I've been able to do is just sit with him. I get with him as often as I can, and I just sit with him. And he weeps. He's devastated by what's happened in his relationship with his wife. Married 20-some-odd years. It was bad what's happened. And I sat with him. He was drunk part of the time. He was loathing in, in self-pity and remorse and guilt. He was not always totally coherent in everything he said. But I sat with him, and I sat with him, and I've sat with him for weeks. And I've just listened, and I've offered prayers, and I've told him I love him, and I've told him I'm here for you. And and, and I'm not trying to praise myself here, but but I've had people who've done that for me. And so I've sat with him and sat with him, and just last week, he's finally gotten sober. He's finally gotten his head clear. He's finally realized, okay, i got to do something. And we sat down, and we read the Bible. And for the first time, he looked at me and he said, I need this. I'm broken. I'm a mess. And he said, I need help. And that's what God wants us to do. That's what Jesus did, and that's what he wants us to do for other people. He wants us to be there in their time of need, to minister, to wait, to serve them, and then to share with them the message. I'm praying for him all the time. I'm hoping that this goes somewhere. I'm hoping that he doesn't give up, that he follows through, because it's going to be a glorious day when he's healed spiritually. And I believe when that happens, there's hope to heal the relationship. 
I believe there's hope to heal the brokenness in that, in that relationship. But if I was just to stop short and just be his friend and help him sober up and help him move on with his life, but do nothing about the state of his soul, that would be criminal. It would be criminal in the eyes of God to not preach the word to him, to not share the good news with him. It would be wrong. And so there's two things that Jesus did. He had a method. He had a way where he went there and he ministered and he served, but he also had a message. And, and the message was where the real healing took place. The message is what he was really all about. That's what I want to be. That's what I want to be known for. That's what I want you to be known for. That's what I want Simi Church to be known for. A church that helps people in need and helps people with their need. Verse 40. So Jesus is basically done preaching the Sermon on the Mount during this time, and he comes down off the mountain, and he runs into a man, and there you can see where, the, where they believe the, the Sermon on the Mount occurred, just north of Capernaum on the road, the Via Maris there. And he comes down, and he runs into a guy with leprosy. And this guy came to him, begging him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hand, reached out his hand and touched the man. I'm willing, he said, be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Then Jesus sent away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places, yet the people still came to him from everywhere. So Jesus comes down, He's just preached to, to who knows how many thousands of people, and he gets a, accosted by a leper. Now, most of us understand that the leprosy, I won't get into all the details, but it was, a, it was the disease of diseases, especially in the ancient world. I mean, there was nothing worse than leprosy. It disfigured you. It eventually killed you. It, it, it was horrendous. And because in those days they didn't have necessarily the same understanding of, mo of modern of medicine that we do, they didn't understand how to deal with it. We have medicine today that can, that can work, that can, that can uh, help it, but it still exists today. There's, I think, last I read, uh, several hundred thousand people around the world that still have leprosy. It's still a real issue. But we have medicine that can treat it, and, and, and uh, I don't know if it cures it or stops it or what, but I know it can, it can be treated. It's not as much of a problem today as it was then. But in those days, it was a death sentence. Not only were you going to die physically, but you were immediately cut off from all of your community. You had to wear clothes that were torn. You couldn't comb your hair or take care of your hair. It had to be a mess. You basically looked like a complete vagabond. And you had to wear a veil. And you had to yell, unclean, unclean, everywhere you went. You had to announce your presence. You couldn't spend time with your family. You couldn't touch people. You couldn't worship at the temple. You were completely outcast. You had to live outside the city. You had to depend on the benevolence of other people. You had to eat the crumbs and whatever people left behind for you. You were cut off. If you were married, no more with your wife, no more with your kids. If you were a son, no more seeing your parents. It was a devastating disease, the worst of the worst. Right. He hears that Jesus 
was a miracle worker. And so, like a smart guy, he runs to Jesus. Hey, you're my only hope. He approaches him and he says, if you're willing, heal me. And Jesus says, uh, indignantly, he, uh, Jesus said, uh, I'm sorry, and Jesus gets indignant. Now, it's funny, I've read this verse a lot, and in different Bibles, there's a different word mentioned here. Different uh, tra manuscripts translate this differently. Here it's the word indignant. Other translations say compassion. So which is it? Was Jesus indignant or was he compassionate towards this guy? I actually think both are true. Because I think there was an indignation in him at the state of this guy. I think he was angry at the condition of this person. He was mad at this disease. He was mad at the destruction that it, that it levied on, on this guy's life and how it completely ruined him. But I think he was compassionate. And the word for compassion has a sense of it turned his stomach. Jesus was sick to his stomach when he saw this guy. I believe that God in heaven, Jesus, wherever he is right now looking at the earth, I think he feels this a lot. I think even today, his stomach turns, and he's indignant with the state of the world. I think he's, he, he's tore up over the poverty, over the, over the war-torn areas of this world, over the selfishness of people who, who ha have more than they could ever need and don't share it with other people. I think it turns his stomach, even to this day, it bothers him. And so he says, I'm willing, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Again, Jesus was a real miracle worker. This isn't like you see on TV where the guy says, oh, I, I have a bad back. You know, and he walks up on the thing and they go, be healed. And he goes, my back's better, right? This, this was real healing. The, the leprosy was, was, was scarring, it was disfiguring, and suddenly it was, it was healed. It was, it was cured, it was clean. The skin would look like it was a, the skin of a corpse as it was rotting on the person physically, and all of a sudden it was, it was clean, it was brand new. There was no denying that this guy was healed. And so Jesus tells him, now go show yourself to the priest and be cleansed. You say, well, what's that about? What's the reason for that? Well, in those days, the way you were declared clean and be allowed back into the community was to go to the priest. You had to show that the, whatever the rash was or whatever it was that broke out on you was now gone, and then they could readmit you because they didn't know much about it, but they knew it was contagious. And so if it was cured, they could readmit you. They went, you went through a, a ritual cleansing, and then the priest would announce your readmission into the community. You could go home and kiss your wife. You could hug your kids goodnight. You could go back to work. I mean, all those blessings would come. What a great day that must have been for this guy when he got to go home and see his kids or his wife or his brother or his sister or his parents or whoever it was. But what an amazing day that must have been for this guy to be returned to the community in full and total and complete health. And that was the point of going to the, Pharisee, or to, the, to the priest so that he could be readmitted in full uh, 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 admission into the community. And that's ultimately what Jesus wants. He doesn't just want to fix a part of you. Right. If you're here because you want to be better, this isn't the place to be. Jesus wants to fix all of you. He wants you completely reintegrated into the world, into the society, into your, into your life. He wants to remove everything that's separated you, everything that's hurt you, everything that's damaged you. He wants to make it clean and then readmit you better back into the community. What, 
What a, what a heart. What a, what a person. And that's what he wants, and he wants us to be a part of that process. And so that's what he tells the guy to do. But does the guy listen? No. You know, I love this part because when, when, when it says he, at once he left with a strong warning, again, I'm, I'm, I like digging into the words, but, but the word there is the same word used to describe a horse snorting. He snorted at the guy. <laughs> Go show yourself to the priest. I mean, I don't know what it sounded like, but he like snorted at him. Why did he snort at him? Because he knew the guy wouldn't listen. And so the guy doesn't, and I don't know if he ever goes to the priest or not, but he runs home. He's too happy, right? He takes off, and he, and he starts telling everybody, and then there's a problem. The problem is now Jesus can't move around openly because there's so many crowds and so many people clamoring at him. So he's got to now be limited in what he can do. He's got to adjust his plan because of this guy's boneheadedness. course his plan always seems to work because people still figured out where he was right and and we're able to get to him but there's a point here and the point is and this is something I want to leave you with it's the point that I don't want you to miss so hear me now we got to listen to Jesus we got to do what he says whether you're if you're a disciple today and you've been cleansed and all the stuff that's ailed you has been healed and you've been fully readmitted into his family as a full participant, and what a great and glorious day that is and was, and you don't listen to him, you are a bonehead. And he's going to snort at you like he snorted at this guy because you're ruining the plan. Do you understand? If you get cleansed, if you repent of your sin, if you are made new and completely restored, and then you go around and do stupid things, it ruins the plan. Jesus now has to work around you instead of with you or through you because you're not listening. And, and, and I know we love to hear grace, 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 and more grace, and I love grace too, but we got to sometimes be warned we got to sometimes be reminded that there is an expectation Jesus has for us to do what he says we should do. We got to listen. We do. We got to listen. Because when we don't, we interfere. We interfere with the plan. Now, he's going to figure it out because he's just bigger and better than we are. But man, do we have to be that guy? Do we have to be the guy that just walks on the plane and says what comes out of our mouth? That's an ugly baby. Do we have to be that guy? Isn't it horrible? I'm going to, a preacher's confession here. Whenever I watch the news and there's some story about abuse, I say to myself, please don't be a minister. Please don't be a minister. Please don't ruin it for me, you knucklehead. It's so true. I think God sometimes is in heaven going, Oh, please don't let that be one of my kids. Please don't let that be one of my Christians. What is he doing? And I don't care how old you are as a Christian, you can be boneheaded. And it all boils down to not listening. We got to listen. You know, that woman on the plane was shocked, right? She was stunned by that guy and, and his words. Jesus shocked people. He shocked them when he spoke. And he shocked him when he did things. And it was for a reason. He wanted a crowd so he can tell them 
the message. Let's not ruin it for him. Let's not blow it when he's trying to do so much good in you and through you and to everyone else around you. At this time, we're going to stand. We're going to have a final song. I'd like to pray, and then we'll sing and we'll close, and that'll be our dismissal. Let's go to God in prayer at this time.